Well, let's see. Well, over the course of the past several weeks, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, and we've been specifically looking at the subject of the Lord's Prayer. Our Lord is on a mountain here in Matthew's Gospel account, and he's been teaching his disciples how and what to pray for. And we need to remember, we, we would do ourselves a favor in remembering that this instruction on prayer is set against a backdrop, the backdrop of the pretending nature of those who profess to be godly, mm. but are actually looking for the reward of earthly glory instead of seeking the reward that comes from the Father. In fact, if you lift your eyes just a little bit or turn the page back and look and see what Jesus is contrasting, you will see that he says, don't be like the hypocrites. And so there's a lesson that we need to learn as our Lord teaches us these things, and it's this. We need to be on our guard all the time. Every single time, every single minute of every single day, we need to be on our guard against every desire to be noticed by others. This is something that is that goes against the grain of our souls because we want to be noticed and recognized for all of our works. We want to be seen by others. And yet the temptation, this temptation creeps into every one of our hearts and the desire to be recognized by others, and solely by others for the work that we've done is ultimately a trade-off between what the Lord has already said about us and what we want the world to say about us. The opinions of others is ultimately elevated over the preeminence of what the Lord has said about us already. Notice you'll see in our text in this Lord's Prayer that the audience that Jesus is pointing his disciples to are not the people in the marketplace. It's the Father. Mm. And that is the way he is teaching us to pray and to live. And if verses 11 through 13 teach us anything, it's that we are not God. We are insufficient. And that is why he teaches us to pray. We're not self-sufficient the way the Lord is. He who planted an ear, does he need an ear to hear? No. He who formed the eye, does he need an eye to see? No. He doesn't need anything the way we do. And so the Lord is teaching us our own humility. And so our text this morning revolves around two basic truths. We're actually looking at the sixth petition, which is found in verse 13. And in our Bibles, it comes at the end of this prayer. And you'll notice a little footnote Usually, uh, people have added the, the doxology, which we'll get to next week, where thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. We'll talk about that next week. But here, you'll notice two basic truths in our text. You'll notice our weakness and God's strength in just this one verse. Marshaled against every believer is a widely spread army into three camps. It's divided into three camps. Every single believer has an army that's marshaled against them. So if you can see the row of horses lined up for the battle, there's three camps within this one army. And these are what the scriptures call our enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The most insidious of this, the most subtle, is is not the devil. It's not even the world, but it's the flesh who has spies 
as it were, on the insides of the camp of our hearts. And so when the Lord teaches us to pray, he's not being an idealist. He's not making things look better than they actually are, and neither should we be idealists. What our Lord does is he places before our eyes the realities that we are to see, not to intimidate us, but to humble us. And this is why prayer is a humbling thing. The realities that we face, the the, the world, the flesh, and the devil, all of these realities that believers are constantly facing every single day are realities that are meant to humble us and drive us to our knees so that as we pray, we understand that in our weakness, the Lord powerfully preserves and delivers us from every evil. That, I think, is the point of the text in the sixth petition, that in our weakness, as we are praying, that we understand that we are weak and the Lord powerfully preserves and delivers us from every evil. And so every blasphemous notion of an effeminate Jesus, a passive Jesus, must be destroyed because now he's showing us how we are to face the battle, how we're to face the world, the flesh, and the devil. And he's pointing us to our Father. And so in our time this morning, uh, what I want to do is I want to look at this one verse under three headings. The first is our natural weakness. We're going to look at our natural weakness because that is what underscores this prayer. The second heading that we're going to look at is the Father's powerful preservation. So we'll look away from us and then we'll look to the Father. We'll look at the Father's powerful preservation. And then the final heading that we'll look at is the Father's powerful deliverance. So we have our natural weakness Then we'll look at the Father's preserving us, and then we'll look at the Father's delivering of his people so that we learn that in our weakness, the Lord powerfully preserves and delivers us from every evil. And so let's look now at verse 13. He says, our Lord says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And since the context of this petition is actually prayer, one of the immediate things that we should notice is that we are the ones approaching the Lord for help. It's not the other way around. We're going to him. It's us going to the Father. And this this is the underlying premise of all prayer. We go to him because we need help. In prayer, we acknowledge the fact that we are truly powerless, unable to accomplish anything. We're not able to accomplish all the things that the Lord has called us to do. So to be a man in this day and age or in any age, we need the Lord's help. To be a woman, we need the Lord's help. To do anything, to raise children, to go to work, to do whatever it is that we're setting our hands to, we need the Lord's help. And prayer has this object in view. We are looking to the Father and away from everyone else. And that's why I've said in the past that prayer is actually judgment on the world. Because the world who goes and depends on all of their resources, all of their money, all of their insights on things, they never go to the Lord. And at the end of the age, when the Father, when when the Lord Jesus Christ judges the world, and he says, how did you accomplish the things that you, you accomplished? The world will say, we did it in our own strength. And then he'll look to his saints and he'll say, how did you go about your business? And we'll say... We trusted in the Lord. Prayer assumes that we were created to be in communion with the living God and that we humbly rely on him rather than ourselves for all that we need to serve and to please him. 
And so we need the Lord to give us our daily bread. It's right there. Give us this day our daily bread. We need the Lord to teach us about his love so that we learn to forgive others just as God in Christ forgave you. But then when we get to verse 13, we come face to face with this powerful army that stands in front of us and even in us. These powerful realities. The first reality is the face, the hardened face of evil. standing, as it were, in the gleaming black armor of warfare. Whether that be in the world, the devil himself, or in our remaining sin or indwelling sin. This is the first reality we come to in verse 13, that we are faced with this hardened face of evil staring at us eyeball to eyeball. The second reality that we face as we look into this hardened face of our enemies the world, the flesh, and the devil, is the weakness of our ability to face all three. So not only do we see the power and the might of the army standing in front of us, but then we start sizing them up and we realize, I can't do this. There is no way. And like the ten spies that went into Canaan, we tremble at the sight of the enemy in light of our weakness. We say... We will be crushed by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Well, the third reality in this verse is that the Lord and the Lord alone is our only hope and defense. But for the moment now, I want to focus on the second reality, the reality of our present weakness in this petition. And this is the reality that I'd like to deal with. The assumption in these words, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, is that a help, apart from the help of the Father, we have no chance. Yeah. There is no chance at all. There is no way that we will go and win this war. Apart from the Father's help, We will not be able to do anything. And this is why Jesus repeatedly tells his disciples, especially the night he is betrayed. I am the vine. You are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians warns against the boasting of the Corinthians. And he says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Again, in Galatians chapter 6, he says to take care that you do not Uh, fall into the same sins as your brothers. And so the scripture is clear about our condition. We are weak. You are weak. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You are weak. We are weak Christians. We are frail and helpless apart from the strength that the Lord himself provides. And the moment that we take this for granted, this is every single Christian. Every single one of us takes our condition for granted. The moment that we take this for granted, we will be led into those temptations. We will, be, we will stumble. We will fall. Only to realize that we need to be humbled again and again and again and again. And this verse assumes our weakness. And the sooner that you and I realize this, the better we will be able to be to rest all of our confidence on the Lord, on our Heavenly Father. In our weakness, we also look at the nature of temptation. And what's interesting is a lot of commentators have had to explain this away in order for us to not be led astray. 
the Father's leading us to sin? That's the first question that some people will ask. Is God actually causing us to sin? And the short answer of that is no. So we have to ask, what is temptation? What is Matthew, or ultimately our Lord, talking about when he says, lead us not into temptation? And one of the friends that I, I have an old pastor who says he has a lot of dead friends. They've been up dead for a long time. Well, one of my friends was around in the 17th century, the 1600s. His name was John Owen. And John Owen is very helpful here when he defines temptation in this way. He says, in particular, temptation is to any man which, that which causes or occasions him to sin or in anything to go off from his duty either by bringing evil into his heart, so you have outward coming in, or by drawing out that evil from his heart, or any way of diverting him from communion with God. And that constant, equal, universal obedience which God requires is threatened. And so the idea behind temptation is either it will come at you or it will be drawn out of you, this evil that we are looking at. And the, the scripture actually uses the word temptation in two ways, either to cause someone to sin or to find out what's in the heart of man. Yeah. So it's said that God tempted Abraham with Isaac. And really what we should be seeing is that it's the same thing. The, the temptation and trial are interchangeable words throughout the scripture. And this is why we need context. Did God tell Abraham to sin? No. But the Lord led him to a place to draw out the faith that was already in his heart. And this, many people say, was his trial or his temptation. And so in that sense, we have this word temptation that we find in the scripture interchangeable with the word trial or testing. In the case of David, the Lord tested David. But then in another text, it says Satan tempted David in the same event. The Lord tested David to bring out what was in his heart. And Satan moved against David to tempt him to get him to fall. And it's not the Lord's job or it's not the Lord's desire to cause people to sin. But when he comes to his people, he draws out what's already in our hearts. And ultimately, this ought to shut the mouth of our adversary. Because if even when we fall into temptation or sin, there is still the work of the Spirit that makes us raise our eyes up from the ground and say, Lord, have mercy. And so when the Lord comes to the Lord's, his prayer in verse 13, and he says, lead us not into temptation. What we are looking at is do not lead us in the way that's going to cause us to stumble. Amen. Amen. And so more often than not, this word is used to draw people into sin, whether by their own lusts or as with the Lord using it to test us. But here, this is more, the emphasis here is more on Please guard us. We understand our weakness. I understand how flawed and how frail I am, Lord. Please help me, guard me, keep me from doing those things which are going to disrupt my communion with you. And that's where we come to the Father's powerful preservation. 
And so here we see the thrust of this petition is not that we would necessarily be led like a lamb led to the slaughter, but that the Father himself would actually act on our behalf. Mm. And so when we look at this, this text, lead us not into temptation, we are looking at the fact that this, these words are connected and deeply connected to the last part of this verse, but deliver us from evil, or some texts say the evil one. You can't separate this petition. You have the negative and then you have the positive. Lead us not into temptation, deliver us from the evil or from the evil one. You can't separate the two, and it's, used, it's this last part of this verse that explains the first part of the petition. So that when we look at deliver us from the evil one, we realize, if we take it all together, that we're just asking the Lord for help. We're asking him for help. And we should be reminded of Psalm 94 when the psalmist says, we just read it in verses 16 through 17. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against the evildoers? If, not, if the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have slipped and lived in the land of silence. And so the language of faith here is expressed in verse 13. The language of heaven sees the Lord as our mighty fortress, as the God who delivers his people, as the God who keeps his people. This is why we read in Psalm 121 that the Lord guards and keeps his people. The Lord is my rock, David says, and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust. And when we come before our heavenly father, when we come before our heavenly father through our Lord Jesus Christ, we are coming before a God who cannot be stopped. Amen. He can't be stopped. He's like a juggernaut going through all of his obstacles with great success. And this is why Jesus says for himself and of the father that when it comes to his sheep, no one can snatch them out of his hand. There is a a, a work, a passive work of guarding his people in the same way that gates guard a city. The Lord himself guards his people. And this is exactly what we are praying for. Don't lead us into a circumstance that's going to cause us to sin against you and blaspheme your name. Guard us from that, Lord. Please guard us from that. The reality of our weakness in the light of the Lord's powerful preservation of his people is more than enough to lead us into singing his praises forever. And when we pray that the Father would not lead us into temptation, what the positive is we're, we're really just asking that the Lord would not interrupt the flow of communion. And we, we see this in little spurts on our, in our daily lives every day when we're on the phone and we go through a, a dead zone. That interchange between you and the person on the other side of that phone gets interrupted by the dead zone. Mm. And then we get frustrated. We think there's something wrong with the phone. We throw the phone at the car or wherever we're at. And we say, I can't hear you. And then as if we can find a way to fix the problem ourselves, we move to the left or we move to the right. And sometimes we even hold the phone up, hoping that it will receive signal because ultimately we don't want any of our communion to be interrupted. And here on a grand scale for all believers, The goal of this is uninterrupted communion before us and the Father. 
And so we ask the Lord himself that he would guard us. Please guard me, Father. Guard me from every occasion that will cause me to stumble. This is true that we should count it all joy when we fall into trials. We should count it all joy, like James says. But should we ask the Lord to keep us from every temptation? As if we are going through life without any temptations? Well, James himself, the half-brother of Jesus, says, count it all joy when you fall into trials of various kinds. The same word, trials, temptations, when you fall into temptations of various kinds. And really, what James is saying is that the Lord uses these trials to perfect our faith, to shape us, to craft our character so that we become more and more like Christ. So we're not praying that we do not ever go into trial or temptation. We're praying that we would be kept from stumbling. That's really what it is. That's the heart of it. We are being kept from stumbling. This is why in Jude's doxology, right right when he ends the letter, he says, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. When Jesus prays his high priestly prayer in John 17, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. I ask that you keep them from the evil one. So, As you go through this life, as you are praying this prayer, do not lead us into temptation. As you're going before your father, understand you will have trials. This is the mistake of every prosperity preacher. You will go through trials. You will go through things that are going to be difficult, that are going to be hard, that are going to, as I've always said, erode your confidence in the Lord. And the, the way the devil works is that he doesn't come at you with this big black gleaming armor, but he does drip by drip by drip by drip. So that by the time Sunday comes around, all of your hope is gone. All of your confidence in the Lord is gone. And now you are st- you're standing before the Lord saying, Lord, I can't even, I don't even know if I believe And this is why we have to constantly pray. Keep us from stumbling. Keep us. Don't lead us into temptation. But we go from not just the Father's ability to preserve His people. Now we have a God in action delivering us. The preservation can just be a passive. He can put up walls. He can set up camp around His people so that no one gets in and no one can get out. So that we are kept But now the Lord deliberately acts. And this is what the Lord is teaching us. But deliver us from evil. If this sixth petition begins on a negative note, it's not our Lord's intention to to stay there. He goes into the positive, which is introduced by the word, but. And these three-letter words in in our scriptures are very important. If we miss these three-letter words, like the word for or but, these conjunctions, then we will miss a lot of what Scripture is trying to teach us. He says that we should ask the Father, but deliver us from evil, connecting this second part of the petition with the first. We need to be delivered. We need to be rescued. This is why we read in our assurance of pardon, Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. He has delivered us. He has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. It's not just a transfer and you're there as an illegal person. You are there and you have been made new. You have been given a new heart. You have been given a new life. 
And now you are adopted, being brought from the courtroom of God's justice into the living room of his adopted family. And you have been delivered and you need to be delivered. In this petition, we're not simply being asked or we're not simply asking the Lord to be given the ability to avoid all kinds of evil. But that we would be both guarded and delivered from the evil. And this means that as we are living through this life, however however many years the Lord has given to you, it could be today that you go to see the Lord, it could be 30, 40 years from now, however long that you have to live that the Lord has given to you, that you pray with David in Psalm 19, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, or salvation. And this means that we're not to be naive about sin. There is zero naivety when it comes to the scripture. The scripture is clear when it comes to, to sin and to our condition. And so everything comes into review in our lives when we come to know the Lord and we understand the world for, the, for what it is. When we understand who the Lord is and who we are in light of being in the presence of the Lord, now we filter the world through the lens of the scripture. And we look at the world and we come face to face with this hardened, faced enemy called the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we need to be delivered from this. So what are these evils? Well, the ESV tells us deliver us from evil. The New King James tells us deliver us from the evil one. But before we get into that specifically, what are these evils? Well, the evil in this world will tempt the Christian away from the Lord so that the cares of this world wrap around your neck and strangle you and you become fruitless. Everything that this world has is marketed towards you. Think about it. Success, job, friends, family, billboards, advertisements, social media campaigns. All of these things are not marketed for your holiness. (laughs) It's not marketed so that you would grow in communion with the Lord. It's marketed on the capital of sin... This is the basis for all of these movies, right? Someone sinned and someone is trying to take justice into their own hands. This is why people love these Marvel Universe movies. This is why in the 80s, everyone loved Rambo because he could go into a jungle and defeat all of these militias on his own, unscathed, maybe dirty. Everyone is looking for a savior, but the capital that the world rests on to tempt all of God's people is sin. And it doesn't promote Holiness. This is what happened to Paul's friend, Demas, in love with this present world. Mm. This is what happened to Judas. He loved money. Mm -hmm. He loved to be first. This is what happened to Diotrephes, someone who was part of the church. And John himself writes about this. And he says, Diotrephes loves to be first. He loves to put himself first. He is always the one talking in conversations. He's always the one that's putting himself forward for what he's done. And in fact, it's gone so far that he doesn't allow other believers to come into other people's homes. Because he wants to be first. This is the evil in this world. You can be at death's door holding on to all of your prized possessions. But these are not going to take you 
to glory. Mm. I was in Manhattan several years back um, on 57th and Lexington Avenue. It's a big street. And right as I was about to cross, I see this big, massive truck fly through 57th Street. And it hit a lady. And it dragged her several feet. And the truck braked to a stop. And everyone pulled out their phones immediately instead of asking for help. They pulled out their phones and started recording. And they ran to see if she was okay. And you know what was in her hand? I almost smile and laugh because of how ridiculous this is. She was holding onto her Gucci bags. She would not let go. She was under, pinned under this truck. Her Bloomingdale's bags flew out. Her Saks Fifth Avenue bags flew out, but she had a Gucci purse and several other Gucci bags. She would not let it go. Mm. This is not going to bring you to heaven. Mm. These are the things of the world. But what about the evil from the flesh, which is perhaps the most insidious of these three? Why? Because it remains in us. It's always present, always coming back so that we have this constant warfare against sin. So that Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 8 to kill sin by the Spirit. This is the spy that lives within the gates. This is the enemy that lies in your bedroom here, the bedrooms of your heart. This is what is the most insidious of all of these sins. And so we say things like, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. But can you believe that person? And what begins to happen is when we take the sin that's remaining in us for granted, this evil, this horrific evil for granted, we start looking at other people's sins. And suddenly they become bigger and bigger and bigger. So that when someone points out to you and says, yeah, but you're guilty of the same thing. I know, but I'm not that bad. Mm. So you look at the news and you say, can you believe these people in other countries? Can you believe this person? Can you believe this person? And that kind of language is a red flag that should be thrown up as an alarm in our own minds, in our own hearts. Because a comment like this means that we have begun to underestimate the power of sin. Mm. Were it not for the grace of God, we would be there also. Were it not for the grace of God, we would be in that same predicament. When we hear of pastors committing adultery, when we hear of abuse in homes, when we hear of pastors stealing at people that we respect and love who have been our teachers for a long time doing things, and we say, can you believe it? Yes, I can. Because they began at some point to take sin for granted. But it's probably fitting here at this juncture to think, not just in terms of the flesh and the indwelling sin, but the evil one himself. When we get to the phrase evil, deliver us from evil, in the Greek, it's a masculine word. Just like in Spanish, you have words that are feminine and you have words that are masculine. This is why movements like the Latinx community and the Latinx group and that's part of the LGBTQ movement is so wicked. Their ideologies are so wicked because they try to destroy language by eliminating the genders within the language. And if you eliminate genders in language, ultimately that'll trickle down to how we interpret the scriptures. And so when we say deliver us from evil it's not that it's a neutral evil no no evil is neutral 
It's not that this is a woman out there. This is deliver us from the evil one. And so we could, we could rightly say this is not just evil, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But this is deliver us from the evil one. The evil one here is in view. And as Jesus later warned his disciples when Satan was rounding up every single general and scoundrel in his armies against our Lord, our Lord reminded his disciples to watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. We must always be watchful and praying so as to not fall. And we might just be like Peter. I will never deny you. Never. You've seen how many Sundays I've come. I've set things up. I've played. I've preached. I've done all of these things. I will never deny you. And then Satan will round up all of his generals and assault you. And you will fall like Peter, and the arrogance of our own hearts will always magnify the sins and the evils of others and will always play down the effect that the world, the flesh, and the devil has on our own hearts. This is the arrogance of our own hearts, and this is why Peter himself, in 1 Peter 5, reminds his hearers. He says, Be sober, be watchful, for your adversary prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So, resist him, firm in your faith. What is the purpose of this deliverance? So we've looked at our weakness. We've looked at the Father's ability to preserve and guard us. But, and we've also looked at this deliverance. But what is the goal? And I think that the aim of this deliverance is not so that we would be free to pursue our own ends. Like the Lord begins to eliminate all of the bad things in our, in our lives. So that we can go and we can just live life as atheists. No. It's not so that we would be free to pursue all of the desires of our hearts, in a sense, but it is so that we would be free to commune with God on a daily and regular basis. We come to the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ, and that is explicitly clear here in this text because he's telling us, go to the Father. He himself is the one that's teaching us, and the only way that we can go to the Father is by the help of the Spirit. The purpose of our deliverance is so that we would have communion with the Lord. And so as we look at this text, as we look at this sixth petition, we are looking at not just the horror of our own weakness, but we're also looking at what we just sang about it. What we're going to sing about it. A mighty fortress is our God. He is our rock and he is our defense. What is this ultimate deliverance that you and I Enjoy as sons and daughters of our Father. Well, there are, there are several stages to this deliverance, right? We've been delivered from the wrath of God now that we've come to Christ. We are being delivered through, from this present evil age, Galatians chapter 1. And then there will be final deliverance where we will see the Lord either in death or Him coming down from the clouds with all of our brothers and sisters, we will be delivered. And in that day, the Lord says, raise your heads because your redemption draws near. We are assaulted on every side by trials and temptations from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the Lord himself, our Lord Jesus Christ, was assaulted on every side. We see in chapter 4 that the Spirit led him into the wilderness and Satan assaulted him every which way he knew how. And yet he knew no sin so that you and I would become the righteousness of God 
in him. This Jesus, our Lord, your Lord and Savior, is the one who is your salvation. He not only guards you, he not only delivers you, but now he comes face to face with you so that he tells you every functional Savior that you have ever invested in will never do you any good except him. He is your personal God. He is your personal Savior. He knows you by name. And like what we read in Revelation chapter 3, he will write his name on your heads. He's already written it on your hearts. You will see him face to face. Every functional savior that you've set up for yourself will never do. Some people love to go to the store. Some people love to go to the movies. Some people like to buy their way through life. And these functional saviors will never do. Right. The Lord himself is the one who saves us. The Father guards us. He does not lead us to a place where we will stumble and blaspheme his name. And so we ask him, please, Lord, guard us. Do not allow us to falter. Don't allow me to fall into the hands of the wicked one. Fill me with your spirit so that I would never trust in myself, but in your sovereign grace. And so when you pray, you are to pray to your father who is in heaven, who sees your weakness. You've gone into your closet. You've gotten on your knees because you know you can't stand. And you pray to your Father who sees your weakness. He knows your nature. He demonstrates the greatness of His power so that you realize as you are praying with all the joy of heaven's air filling your lungs, you realize that He is your mighty guard and that He is your great deliverer. And so we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.